What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Today, I'm talking to Kevin Lee, the founder of Emmy. Kevin is a good friend of mine. The, the way that Kevin and I met was that he messaged me about my ads for indie hackers. And he was like, hey, Cortland, I love what you're doing, but you're charging way too little. And I was like, well, if you think that's the case, then why don't you be the first person to pay the prices that you think I should be charging for ads? And he agreed. So if you go back to episode two of the podcast, you can actually hear Kevin's ads in the show. Uh, Kevin's a super talented founder. He has run the premier community for product managers online, and now he's working on something brand new. So in this episode, uh, we just get personal. We talk about our own health and wellness. We talk about looking back from your deathbed, literally, and trying to make sure that you live the life where you worked on the things that actually brought you joy and you didn't just do the things that society told you you should work on. Uh, we talked about dealing with the haters and the naysayers and the people who tell you that your product literally isn't gonna make it and who won't talk to you at conferences and who won't give you the time of day because Kevin's had to deal with quite a lot of that with this new venture. And we just catch up as friends. I've been thinking that I should bring a lot more of myself to the episodes, uh, just be a little bit more personal on the podcast. And so I did a lot of that in this episode. If you like it, ping me on Twitter and let me know. And if you don't like it and you don't want to hear about me, you should also ping me on Twitter and let me know. I promise I won't take offense. Enjoy the episode. I subscribed to a whole bunch of Substacks. I had this crazy phase last year where I was like, I'm gonna subscribe to every Substack and just read everything. Uh, and then I ended up like funneling into this new email address. I thought it was so smart. I'm like, I'm gonna make an email address and get an iPad and I'm only gonna have my Substacks on that Gmail. And it turns out none of the stuff I subscribed to was important enough for me to ever even open that email address. <laughs> so I had to like oh, re <laughs> redirect all of it to my normal email that I actually check and I just incidentally see it when I'm checking like my real actual important email. And one of the ones I subscribed to is the Jungle Gym newsletter, which I'm sure you're intimately familiar with. Yeah, yeah. I open up the email and I literally just see like your face smiling back at me, like a huge portion of just your face right at the top of the email. And I'm like, oh shit, it's Kevin. Like what's Kevin been up to? I have to tell Nick that because I remember too that after he published that, you DM me, I texted Nick and I was like, dude, your newsletter has powers. Like I just reconnected with Cortland and like I'm going on the podcast and like another thing came out of it, the pilot that accounting software, I'm doing like a fireside chat with their CEO. Really? Someone saw the Jungle Gym newsletter and then reached out. And so I was like, wow, like more people should be featured on his newsletter. It's good, man. It's like super personal. Again, like literally your face is right at the beginning of it. So there's like, there's no question who this is about. Cause like the vast majority of these things, I just archive. Like honestly, if I'd read the totally. subject, I would, uh, and that was it. Like I would have just archived it. Like if your face wasn't there and I didn't recognize <laughs> you, there's no way I would have read the email. Well, I'm so flattered. Thank you. For <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Speaking of which, are you doing anything tonight at 7 p.m.? Because Nick is actually doing a talk. Uh, or um, not a talk. So clubhouse? He's doing a clubhouse. I knew you were going to say clubhouse. It, it was a clubhouse thing. Yeah, it's called audience as a career mode. Every time in the last two weeks, anyone has any sentence that starts with, what are you doing later tonight? The rest of the sentences, 100% <laughs> of the time, there's a clubhouse talk going on. <laughs> it's like Julian Shapiro is actually supposed to do it. I don't know if he can make it, but it's Justin mm. Mayer's Julian. And it's called audience as a career mode, which kind of feels like it's straight up your alley. So Yeah, yeah. I talk to Julian literally every single day because we're starting a new podcast. And we are we literally just recorded our fourth episode yesterday. It's mostly about audience building, but it's mostly just about like bringing on people who are really good at things. Like we want to have a huge variety of topics. And we've got a talk show format. So every episode is going to be me, Julian, and then two other people who we think would just be really interesting to put in the same room together and just see what they say about a topic. So we did, uh, you know, Sam Parr, who runs The Hustle. Yeah. That guy is like super opinionated, super fun. And like, he'll ask anybody any question completely shamelessly. And then we've got Ayla, who's like this OnlyFans creator from Twitter, who's got like 70,000 followers and she's super like personal and authentic and she'll share anything. I mean, she's literally a porn star. So we put them in a first episode and we're like talking about audience building. Or we've got one coming up with Jason Calacanis and Sean Peary from My First Million about podcasting. Wow. And like, they're both like super cool personalities. It'll be fun to talk to you. These are great guests. Yeah, it's super good. Every episode is going to be great guests. Heavy hitters who like are not afraid to be brutally honest about things. That's the exact formula. Only people who are honest. The name of the show is, is going to be an honest conversation. And it's like, if you're not honest, if you're not willing to like share embarrassing information, like we don't want you on the show. Oh man, that's awesome. Hopefully it'll turn out well. It might be a dud. But at the very least, it's like, it's super fun. 
And it's a good excuse for me and Julian to like hang out every day, pretty much. Yeah, I was in like Julian's small writing group for a while. He was doing like this writing experiment thing. It was really hard, but anyway, <laughs> I love hanging. Yeah. Did you learn to write? I had like this writing phase where like Sahil and I would spend like every morning for like three hours and just sit on a Zoom quietly and just like write together. But he was actually writing like a book at the time and he had like a bunch of things going on and I was just writing for fun. And then after I stopped that, like Julian pinged me and he was like, hey, I'm doing a small writing group. And I'm like, okay, let's keep the train going. It's hard. It's hard to do like a company and then write proactively. You really have to prioritize the time. So yeah, it's a Sahil is an interesting guy. It's always fascinating to me, like how much free time he has to just sit around. <laughs> he he engineered that though. Like I think he's like it's beautiful. Right? The way he's like created the company, like with like no meetings and all that stuff. He has definitely designed his life. So he was on our podcast yesterday, and like right after the podcast ended, Julian had a bunch of stuff he had to run and do. Jack had a bunch of stuff he wanted to do, and then me and Sahil just had nothing to do. <laughs> so we talked oh. for like an hour and a half. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I don't know if you know what he's up to. I mean, he's doing a lot of angel investing. Like he's one of the first, I think he's the first person to do a rolling fund where pretty much anyone can just go to like his little notion memo and be like, I'm going to put in five or $10,000 into your fund Sahil, Cause you're a great investor. And you know, you could take 20% of whatever profits you make for me, which is a great deal. And he's super good. I mean, he got into clubhouse. A lot of great investors can't get into clubhouse. And so he's telling me, I was like, you know, why are you spending so much time on social media and stuff? And he's like, I have like 170,000 Twitter followers. I've got more than that on Clubhouse in just the last few months. By the end of the year, I'm gonna have like a million followers on Clubhouse. And if I just get on and I'm, I'm myself and I talk about the people I know and the deals I'm able to get into, like people will invest with me and I get 20% of that. And he's already got like six or $7 million that people have invested with him. And so it's like, I've never seen a better plan for converting like audience building into actual money. It's like way better than launching a course. It's way better than starting a community or doing a newsletter. Cause he's like literally just telling his audience members like, Hey, I will make you money. You've got a hundred thousand dollars. Like I'll turn it, I'll turn it into two. And people are like, sure. <laughs> so it's super crazy. I am. I am one of those investors are who you? believes in style. Yes. <laughs> when he told me early on about the fund, I was like, dude, I don't like shut up and take my money kind of thing. <laughs> It's super easy because it's like, well, you could be an angel investor yourself. Like you're a well-connected guy. I mean, like you obviously, you worked at Payer. You too, Corlin. I'm surprised you don't have a rolling fund yet. Unless you do, secretly. No, I don't have a secret one. If I did, I'd be I'd be screaming it from the top of my lungs on the podcast every episode. No one would even listen anymore. But it, it's super cool. I don't think this would have been possible like five or 10 years ago. Like number one, there were no rolling funds. It's super hard to find like an accredited investor who's got a million dollars in assets and, and is even allowed to angel invest. And then number two, it just has never been as easy... I think as an individual to build like a really big audience. You, on the other hand, have gone, have had a very cool winding path because like, as long as I've known you, you've always been like a tech guy. You're working at VCs, you had your own online community, talking about like product management, like you're all 100% tech. And then I don't know when you first told me about Emmy, maybe it was like, it was somewhere in 2019, I guess, because we were at Phil's Coffee. And I was like, what are you up to? And you're just telling me about how you're sitting in your kitchen with your co-founder, like experimenting with noodles. Yeah. <laughs> noodles. <laughs> I saw it in the, yeah. in the, in the, sub, in the uh, Substack article too. You're like, oh, my friends think I'm, I'm crazy because I've made like, spent like, you know, hours and hours making 200 different types of noodles. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. I'm one of those friends. It's like, you're crazy. <laughs> I remember that coffee where you were, I could see the confusion on your face. And I was like, hmm, this is going to take some explaining. <laughs> All right. So I still kind of think you're crazy, right? Like, Tech is so scalable. You can you can build a website, you know, a million people can read it. You can build start a podcast, millions can listen to it. Food is not that scalable. Like food is hard. Every time someone's gonna eat one of your ramen noodles, like you gotta make a ramen noodle. And like that's expensive, it's tough. Why on earth would you just you decide to get out of tech and start making ramen noodles? I, I was actually thinking about it this morning because I had a feeling you were gonna ask me this question. I've noticed that there's a recurring trend in the things that I like to do in my quote unquote career. Generally, it has been this idea of, I call it like helping people, you know, accelerating movement through Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Ultimately, what it is, is like, it's just democratizing like access to certain things. And so in my early 20s, I was really big on like education. I worked in education tech and I was at like alt school, uh, which is building like software and hardware for education. After that, you know, I went to Funders Club, which was this venture capital firm that was trying to democratize like investing because they were basically the first form of AngelList before there was AngelList and they like they went through Y Combinator. And I guess now when I think about what I'm doing with IMI, it's this idea of like democratizing nutrition. And, and the reason that became more important to me is because in my mid to late 20s, 
my own body started just breaking down. Like I think in the early 20s, I was all about software. I was like, my mind is software. I got to optimize the software. Like that's all that matters. And then I slowly came to realize like, holy shit, my body is not keeping up with me. Like I'm not in my, like, I'm not like 24 anymore. I can't go run a marathon and like be totally fine. My knees wore down. My hands almost got carpal tunnel. I was wearing like braces, like the hand braces for two years. How old are you now? I turned 30 last August. So I'll be 31 this year. I'm going to be 34 in another month. And I remember, I remember distinctly remember 30, like, holy shit, I'm mortal. I will someday die. (laughs) And we've talked about this before because I also had like repetitive strain injury. And I also had like a year where I was wearing braces on my wrist. And I was like, my career as a software engineer is literally over. I thought that when I was like 29, I was like, I'm going to have to like, I don't know, do something else. Like I can't type, literally can't type. It's so scary. It's, it is the scariest thing because we're both like in this like knowledge worker mode and like, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything to us. And so you know, I think that happened. And then simultaneously, my my parents too. So they have had high blood pressure for probably over a decade now. And then when I was uh, at alt school, my mom, you know, she got a diagnosis for breast cancer. And my grandma also, she has been pre-diabetic for a long time now. And she has hypertension. She actually had a stroke a few years ago that left her half paralyzed. And so all of these health issues just kind of compounded it both in my own life and in my family's life. I think that's where I started moving out of the whole like tech, you know, software mindset and starting to think more about health and nutrition. And, you know, my co-founder now, his name is Kevin. So we met 10 years ago um, at a mobile gaming company called Kabam. And it's funny because we came to realize at Kabam that we both came from food families too. So this is kind of like the, I wouldn't call it a plot twist, but it's just like my grandparents are produce farmers in Taiwan. A lot of my childhood was actually like in the fields with them picking, stemming, packaging, this type of fruit called a rose apple. And his grandmother used to sell noodles out of a noodle stand, like a hawker stall in Thailand. And then his dad was running an Asian supermarket and a Thai restaurant in LA selling noodles. So both of us have it in our blood, but our parents actually immigrated to the US so that we would not be in the food industry. So <laughs> so that you could get into tech. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I remember, I distinctly remember the conversation where like, I went to them like, hey, I, uh, I'm leaving venture capital. I'm going to sell instant ramen on the internet. And, <laughs> and both of them were just like, why are you doing this? Like, I remember my dad was like, have you walked in an Asian grocery? There are literally hundreds of other brands. Like, why would you do this? And I like my co-founder, K-Chen, was a, he was a lead product manager at Facebook, like leading the social video team. And his opportunity cost was insane. It's funny because in your newsletter, uh, the Jungle Gym interview, you, you had a kind of a line in there that sounds like such a stereotypical like founder line where you never quite know when people tell you like why they're working on something, if it's true or not. So you're like, uh, what'd you say? You said, we switched to food and beverage because we both grew up in Asian food families and we wanted to help our parents <laughs> better manage health conditions arising from poor nutrition. And like 99% of the time I talk to people who say things like that, like, I'm like, okay, what's the real reason? They're like, oh, we, saw, we spotted a gap in the market and we're going to make so much money, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But it's cool because yours is actually true. Well, it's funny because in the beginning, we, we actually just wanted to work on like a better like noodle period. Like it wasn't instant ramen. It was just a better noodle because we both love noodles. That's actually how we first met. Kitchen and I, we used to work in Canada for Kabam. And like literally the first time we bumped into each other was we both walked into a noodle joint because we were actually kind of hungover from the night before. And we both showed up at the same place together. And he was like, dude, what are you doing here? And I'm like, what are you doing here? And then we both just got noodles. And that's how we bonded. So when we were talking about starting like a food company, we settled on that. And then over time, as we like looked at the market, we were like, okay, it probably makes more sense to work on instant ramen as a category. So kind of did like back into it that way, but we, we both definitely wanted to do like food and beverage, which I know sounds really strange. I feel like we can't gloss over the fact that we both had RSI, carpal tunnel scares. How did you solve yours? Like, how did you get over that? I tried a bunch of different things. I bought like eight different keyboards, like six different mouses. Um, Me too. Did you get like the Kinesis, like split keyboard where it's kind of at an angle? Yes, I did have that. Now I'm on a Keychron mechanical keyboard. I have this, I don't even know what this is. This Like a trackball mouse? Yeah. I did this weird hand exercise against the wall where you go like this and then you have to like stretch. I don't know if you ever did that one. Yeah, I've done all, all the stuff. None of it worked. I've done all of them. Yeah, it didn't work. So what worked for me was I took turmeric pills every single day fish oil and then magnesium something that I, I don't even recall anymore but I, I took three types of pills every single day for like three months straight dude look at this I, Hold think on the turmeric... I got a whole bunch of fish oil pills <laughs> i 
I've got a whole bunch of uh, turmeric spice tea that I've been drinking. Like, this is just random stuff I started a few years ago. I never thought that it had any effect on my wrist, but like, it's your cure. And coincidentally, I've been doing the same thing. It's, it's worked. I remember we both talked about this and you told me that you actually lifted weights yes. to strengthen like your wrists. And I started doing that. Okay, honestly, I couldn't tell if it was making it worse, but I know for a fact that turmeric reduced the inflammation. I don't think it solves a core issue, but reducing the inflammation helped me manage the pain day to day. And then I think like the combination of the fish oil with the hand exercises, and then generally just like sleeping better and reducing stress, I think made a huge difference. There's so many factors that go into stuff like this. And it's like, at some point, you don't care about determining the cause. You just care that you're better so you can do the thing that you want to do. So you just do all the things. But like I'm doing all those things. For me, uh, weightlifting is super helpful. That one I'm almost 100% sure. It's like when I have strong muscles, like my wrist just never hurt. And whenever I feel like the pain coming back uh, and I ask myself, like, when was the last time I worked out regularly? It's always like four months ago, three months ago. It's like, oh, I stopped working out. Like this is almost guaranteed why it stopped. But uh, it's cool to see that like you're better and I'm better. Because it's like when you're staring into like your future thinking like, I'm never going to be able to work again. <laughs> That's a scary thought to have. Yeah, I thought my life was over, which sounds super dramatic. And I'm sure you did too, because I've heard the horror stories. There's people on like Hacker News who talk about it all the time, where they had to take a sabbatical for like two years. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like I can't do that. Did you read these crazy, st- like I went deep in the rabbit hole and like started reading stories about like people who are like, it's actually all in your mind. It was super popular on Hacker News. It was like the most popular blog post I found on RSI and Cop Corporal. I was like, this is such bullshit pseudoscience. You can't affirmations this thing. Affirmations your health. This is not like Wim Hof method. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> so on a related note, talking about health, and then I swear we're gonna talk about Emmy. Today's Thursday. We were supposed to record this last Thursday, but last week I was super sick. I, I had like a fever that just wouldn't break. Uh, headache that lasted like 10 days. My doctor was like, you need to go to the emergency room and like, just get this, let's just like rule out like meningitis and like stuff that might kill you really quickly. And I went, you know, I had days of COVID tests, everything came back negative and I was just a mess. Like we were going to record this last week and I just canceled it. And then on Thursday morning, I woke up at 3am. Have you ever had night sweats? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. I never had night sweats. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I like sleep in my apartment with it. it, it I keep it cold. I just like to sleep in the cold and like kind of cuddle up in my blanket. And I woke up at 3 a.m. just drenched. It was like someone had just thrown a bucket of water on me. My shirt was soaked. Like everything was soaked. And I was like, what the hell is happening to me? So I just was like delirious, like hallucinating, like fevered and like drenched in sweat. And I'm like go- furiously Googling all my symptoms. Like what's going on? And when you put all the symptoms that I had into Google, I had like this kind of like, uh, I had like fever, swollen lymph nodes, all the stuff. And you put it into Google and it's like, Pages one, two, three, and four are all just like blood cancer. It's like you have lymphoma. Oh my god! You have leukemia. <laughs> like you have like there's another oh, scary geez. one. It's called polycythemia vera. So I'm like delirious. Pretty sure I have blood cancer. Like crying. Like what am I gonna do? I'm through like all five stages of grief at like 3 a.m. Like eventually I accepted it and I was like, well, what do I want to do with like my career? Do I keep working on indie hackers? Like let's say I have like blood cancer and like I'm gonna you know 50% survival rate five years from now. Like what do I want to do? You know, you can kind of simulate like being on your deathbed and looking at like what your purpose is. It's not really real unless like you, for some reason, really think like you might die. <laughs> so I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, do I, yeah, do I announce this on the podcast or do I just like go quietly? You know, like, do I keep working on this or do I quit? <laughs> and the cool realization that I had was like, oh, you know what? I still want to work on any hackers for at least another couple of years, which means that it's not something that I'm doing just because society says I should do it or because it's like, quote unquote, successful, but it's because I find it meaningful. And it's cool to hear that like you have also, I guess, off the back of like health issues, been able to find like what you truly find meaningful. And it wasn't necessarily the same thing that you were doing beforehand. I love that story, man. I think that should be a question you ask every single founder is like, tomorrow you're going to die. Like, are you going to spend today <laughs> working on your company for the next 24 hours? Okay, maybe not that extreme, but like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do with your last few years? You got eight years, you know, what are you going to do with the next four that's like, um, I was reading, I was rereading like Tools of Titans or whatever, that Tim Ferriss book. I like reading it like once a year because it's like a bunch of wisdom. And one of the chapters is about how he takes like mushrooms like pretty regularly because it just resets everything, like his whole perspective. And he's like, okay, am I, am I prioritizing correctly? <laughs> it's not like ego death or whatever that is. Like, I think that's pretty extreme, but it's just like another resetting. So, well, let's talk about, let's talk about Robin. <laughs> <laughs> What's your co-founder's name? K-Chan, Kevin Chan? 
We we can call him K Chan just to make it easier. K Chan, yeah. you've met at this noodle shop and you've decided like you know what these noodles aren't great. We need a better noodle. Or, or what was like your thought process? Because I've eaten at a lot of restaurants and thought it wasn't good, and I didn't decide to like go start a company. Well, I think the first and foremost thing is like what we knew we wanted to start was a better for you food and beverage brand. That was like the simplest, most high level thing. Again, the reasons for that was you know we were seeing that both like our own bodies, our families were kind of going through these chronic health conditions and. A lot of that stems from just like not knowing how to eat properly or like poor nutrition. And so that was the first step. And then the second step was like, okay, well, like what product we actually want to work on or what's what's like the broader vision. And it kind of made sense that we both grew up in Asian food families, like quite literally, both of our families are still in Thailand and Taiwan in the food industry. And so we're like, okay, well, we should probably work on an Asian food business because that's something we're like uniquely suited to do. And we just kind of love that food. And then from there, it was, okay, well, what's the product? Like, what's the actual food that we want to work on? And again, we kind of like backed into this because we we both just kind of jumped to noodles. Like, I distinctly remember he was at my apartment. We were like talking. We were like, what food do we want to work on? And then we were like, let's just work on noodles. Like, we both met that way. And like, we both love noodles. But the reason we feel terrible after eating noodles is like, you kind of feel bloated. It's like a lot of carbs. There's generally not like any nutrition really with like the wheat flour. Like, is it possible to make a low carb noodle? That was like the first question we had for ourselves, but we just knew we were like, look, if we can make like a healthier version that's low carb, then that's good. So that's how we set out. And then, and then we started from there and then slowly moved into this idea of like low carb, high protein, instant ramen. And and that's what version one is. It's super trendy to be honest, because, you know, if you think about like how we grew up, like you're talking about like families not knowing how to eat, right? Like my parents like took me to McDonald's all the time. Like I was just like, all the kids love my house because we had every soda, we had every sweet cereal, we had like, I don't know if you know what Little Debbie's are, we had all that stuff. Like, like the word nutrition did not exist when I was growing up. We just ate everything, you know. Were and, you the kind of, were you like the one where you open the refrigerator and it's just like, it's like beautifully lined up with all the soft drinks? <laughs> that's exactly what it was. Like, I'm the kid who went to college and people were drinking water. I'm like, why would you ever drink water? Ew. But now, like, people are just, like, we're smarter, you know? Like, our whole generation is just, like, more educated. Like, oh, this stuff that, like, we were sold is not good, and we need better, healthier food. It's it's funny, that story. Um, When my parents – so my parents immigrated here from Taiwan. They also didn't know any better, and they, they honestly just had no money either. And so for them, going to Safeway and just picking up whatever was available, that's that was just, like, all they knew. And my dad grew up extremely poor in Taiwan, and so he was always hungry. And so his goal was, like, okay, I'm going to have a son in America – I want to make sure that he's fed like to the brim till he's bursting. And so we would always go to like Safeway. I would like pick up the like the extra large Lunchables and like, I, you know, I, that's the, I would eat a ton of processed food. And <laughs> it's just pure sodium. It was just like, yeah, it's just terrible. It was like refined carbs. And I told my girlfriend, Josie, I was like, look, I was actually overweight as a kid. And she's like, you weren't overweight. You're like, you're, you're exaggerating. And about like a month ago, I went back home to my, my family's place in Fremont to get some like kid photos for our website. And I found one of my photos and I showed it to Josie and she was shook, like straight up shook. She was like, <laughs> I, I did not believe you were overweight, but like, I cannot believe this. Like, I don't talk about that story a lot, but like, yeah, that was most of my childhood. If you read, there's a book out there called Salt, Sugar and Fat by this like investigative reporter. He basically examines all of the food giants and all their practices um, and how they were like trained by the tobacco industry on how to use deceptive advertising to basically push salt, sugar, and fat to like the American public. And and if you read that book, you'll be shocked because there's all these crazy things you learn, like those Cheeto puffs, how they invented them. It's like, because they like melt instantly in your mouth, it's basically like your brain thinks it's like an empty calorie. So it just like, it doesn't think it's eaten anything. So you can just like keep eating the entire bag and you won't even realize the crazy things that happen with the processed food industry. That's kind of like the the gap in the market kind of angle, right? Like this is... Uh, You're just deconstructing our business here. Uh, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to break <laughs> it all down. Because I'm trying to figure out like why, why start this, right? You've got the personal reason, the family reasons, you've got the gap in the market. Uh, there's also just like straightforwardly like the financial opportunity, right? Like when you look at the food industry and the fact that like, again, again it's not that scalable. I mean, you obviously can scale it, but like break it down for me. Like how does this work? Like what are the unit economics? Like what do you need to do to make a successful ramen company you know one of the things i saw a few years ago was so like my friend justin mares and his second employee wilson hung is actually a good friend and i remember a few years back wilson was like hey i'm leaving you know i think he was at sumo at the time with noah kagan he's like i'm going to work with justin on this bone broth company and i was like why the hell would you do that this is super random you're leaving software 
And you know, Justin, like, I, I don't know if he revealed any figures, but obviously Kettle and Fire was the fastest growing bone broth company in the US. Him and his brother, Nick, basically applied everything they learned in the tech industry to selling bone broth online. And I watched them grow Kettle and Fire and I was like, holy crap, like, there's, there's clear opportunity in the food and beverage space in e-commerce right now. And you know, I don't think I need to explain the, the common cliches that, you know, e-commerce is going to continue to grow. Like, you know, people are getting more comfortable with the idea of buying groceries and food products online. That's all there. But I think what's interesting is like, if you look at the, the food industry, a lot of these conglomerates, most of them are public companies. And the CEOs of these public companies, they have certain incentives, right? And certain like vested interests. You look at like the Kraft Heinz's of the world who have been pushing the same kind of like processed food for the past you know, few decades. And like the bulk of middle America is like buying their food. And that's why they're, you know, they're making billions and billions of dollars. But the CEOs of public companies are generally graded on like quarterly basis. And so if they decide tomorrow, they're like, look, we know that American health trends are, are moving towards healthier things. We need to adjust our portfolio. Then like naturally, probably what's going to happen is like sales are going to drop because, you know, the, the core audience is going to be like, wait a second. Why, why does this taste a little bit healthier? Like what's going on here? Yeah. Why is it this melting in my mouth? <laughs> Yeah, like what, what's going on? Like, I, want this to, I want this to be at the bliss point, which is like another term they created. Well, these CEOs don't have that incentive, right? And so if they try to change their formulations, make things healthier, sales drop and they get fired, fired by their board. And so there's a lot of turnover naturally at these companies now, but you know, I think for them, they, they have no choice. They, they, they basically have to buy smaller companies in order to innovate just because the incentive structure is not there. And I think that's pretty interesting for anyone looking at this space because you know, it's not like bone broth, maybe it started out as like a $20 million market or something. Like maybe it was small, but now it's like a hundred million. That's still like a huge chunk of the market. And for a huge food conglomerate, that may be a drop in the bucket for them. They make so much money that they may not be able to divert attention and like focus on a startup that's peeling away these tiny bits of market share for them. So I think that's, that was like a very interesting insight that I kind of gleaned when I spent more time looking at the space. Another thing too is like when I was at my previous venture firm, Pear Ventures, somehow I kind of became like the, you know, head of food and beverage investing there. Like Paige Mon, the founder, found out that, you know, my grandparents were farmers in Taiwan and he knew I really loved food because I kept talking about it. And he was like, and then after a certain point, he was just, he would just introduce me. He'd be like, here's Kevin. He leads food and beverage investing at Pear. And I was like, all right, I better own up to it now. And I started like, I just kind of used that opportunity to learn a little bit more about the space and talk to like buyers at supermarkets, talk to food and beverage founders. And I think that's where I started to learn like, holy crap, there is a huge shift happening in the grocery right now. I don't think I have to explain it to anyone, especially if you're in like the bi-coastal regions of the US where you walk into a Safeway versus a Whole Foods, it's just like night and day, right? Like every single brand at Whole Foods is like, I've never heard of them before because I never grew up with them. They're like totally new. It doesn't matter if you're in the pasta aisle, in the cereal aisle, in the frozen food aisle. It's all these like fancy sounding brands that are all like super clean ingredients. This whole thing about new food brands are able to peel away market share. Larger food conglomerates can't focus the attention to combat this. Health trends in America are generally changing. I think there's also some like social dynamic things, like cultural things at play. Like obviously we have Instagram where with a click of a button, you can follow your favorite celebrity, your favorite influencer. And like generally when your social economic status rises in America, you can afford to eat healthier foods. So like most of these celebrities and like influencers are all eating like the kettle and fires and the, hopefully the Emmys of the world. And so if you see that, you're going to aspire to be like that. And that's, I think, a big reason why you look at like millennials and Gen Z and everyone kind of all of a sudden is caring about their health a lot more. You're describing the, uh, it's like the classic innovators dilemma where the incumbents, like they just don't, they can basically do everything right. They can operate well. They can like hit their numbers every quarter and still get completely disrupted because they just don't have the incentive to really go down and try to innovate and target like a very small yet growing cohort of consumers. And like, that's where you can come in. And so like, what I wanna know is like, you're still facing these huge conglomerates. It's still not easy to break into the food industry and like, and do what, you know, what like Justin has done and what some other people have done. And so I wanna know like, what, what your like playbook is for how you're gonna do this. When we were thinking about applying a tech mindset we, we did look up to Justin because he published a lot of case studies around how he demand tested. You know, he did like unbounced landing pages. He used celery to collect pre-orders. We did the exact same thing. We were like, we don't need to reinvent that. Like that's how you should demand test anything. It doesn't matter if it's software or like food and beverage. So we had an unbounced landing page. We had a friend do a mock-up for like 20 bucks of a design. 
we had like a table comparing the value props of like, back then it wasn't even called Emmy. I forgot what it was called. It's something else against like traditional instant ramen. And then K-Chan, because he was coming um, from his PM position at Facebook, they give free ad credits. Actually, I probably shouldn't talk about this, but he had some ad credits that we were able to use. It made it cheaper to test. And so we kind of looked at the numbers and we were like, holy shit, the conversion's good. Like there was people giving us their credit card information. We were collecting pre-orders. Um, we would email these people and be like, hey, we don't have products. Do you want a refund or do you want us to keep your money? And like 50% of the people were like, no, keep my money. Like I really wanted this product. And we were like, okay, that's that's clear demand there. And then that's really where we then put on a different kind of hat to learn the whole like food science piece. I don't know if it's like naivety or ignorance is bliss type things, but we had zero preconceived notions of how to start a food product. And it's funny because I think I remember like around like 50 iterations in, we actually like approached a bunch of food scientists and 80% of them were like, no, this is an idiotic product. Like there has never <laughs> been a low carb, high protein noodle. Here's all the reasons why it won't work. Like X, Y, Z, hydrocolloids, like too much protein content. And then we, a lot of it just honestly like went over our heads because we were like, we have no idea what the fuck you're talking about, but I guess we're going back to the drawing board and we're going to do it ourselves. So when we started formulating, we did what anyone else would do, which is we went on YouTube and we literally watched those like YouTube chefs. They, they would hand roll noodles in their kitchen and like let the dough rest. And they use like pasta machines. That is literally what we did. We just replicated their process just to get an idea. And then over time, K-Chan had the idea of downloading these research reports that were like Chinese and Japanese research reports. And then we would just run them through like Google Translate. And then we would just copy the formulas and then try those. And so that was like the second phase. And then once we hit this theoretical limit of, you know, hey, like, hey, we have no idea how to proceed from here. We actually reached out to a few friends in the industry who connected us to people. Um, so we had this chef and this food science, uh, food science PhD who were also interested in our idea. And they were like, oh, that sounds super cool. Like we'll come help you as advisors. And what we learned from them that I think is super interesting is when we were formulating in our kitchens, I would say our throughput was pretty slow. We were probably making like one formulation per hour. And we had this like Google spreadsheet. We were trying to be all techie about it. Like we were like, we had all these nice formulas and we were like iterating down these formulations, but we were just really freaking slow. And the food science PhD, basically what he did was he came in and he, he improved our throughput. He was just like, look, here's something about your process you're not doing right. Or like you're isolating like two variables at a time when you should be doing one variable. Or why do you have 10 ingredients? Like you can simplify this. You can just cut it down to four ingredients. And what that did was it, it basically like four to five X our throughput where we were able to make like four to five formulations per hour and do them in parallel. And that just increases the cycles of like feedback loop. And then the chef in residence, the other thing that he did was he, I would say what he did was he broadened our vocabulary of what ingredients were out there. So it's almost like if you're developing in a certain programming language from the eighties, and then all of a sudden someone's like, dude, have you heard of Python? Like you can probably save a shit ton of time by using this language. And that's basically what the chef did for us. He came in and he was like, why are you guys using these like proteins? These are so old school. Have you reached out to this ingredient supplier? Just tell them you're a food manufacturer and they'll give you free samples. And we were like, wait, you can get free samples of ingredients. Cause we were literally buying stuff off of Amazon. Like we were like, we would buy it from like Bob's red mill. We would wait like two weeks for it to arrive. And then we'd be like, oh cool, here's a new ingredient. And that's why like our throughput was so slow. So this guy was like, just email like 50 suppliers. They'll ship you a pound or something of their free product. And then all of a sudden we had like a huge encyclopedia of ingredients to play with. So I think it was the broadening the encyclopedia of ingredients, improving our throughput, that got us to our 200 iterations a lot faster than would have been possible without their help. And I think that's what, um, that's why we were able to get to this, you know, this version that we were comfortable bringing to a manufacturer to, to bring to commercial scale. I like that you had, you had haters, you had experts who were like, this is never going to work. I mean, everyone, everyone has these stories. It's funny. Cause I think the longer you spend in an industry, the more critical you're going to be of it. Right. It's, I, I saw this too in venture where, Every time we were diligencing a company, we would reach out to the experts in that industry. Like if it was a fintech, we'd go to a fintech expert who, had, who spent like 20 years and they would always say, there's no way this is going to work. I've been in this industry for 20 years. There's no way. Look, think of all these things they have to battle through. And after a certain point, it's like, wait a second, like there is something pretty counterintuitive here, which is if you know nothing and you go into this industry with nothing, you might end up doing better because you just won't talk yourself out of these problems. Like you, you'll just kind of do it because you're super naive 
Now, of course, this is like survivorship bias. Like for every one of us, there's probably like 99% of people who just didn't know anything and failed. But I, I think you, you can't talk yourself out of it is, is what I would suggest. Yeah. I think it's remarkable how, how much you can sort of catch up to like kind of the gold standard of knowledge. Like people kind of think like you have to have been an expert in something your entire life. But I've seen time and time again, like I used to I use this framework uh, for programming called Ember. And like it was partly created by this dude, Tom Dale, who like didn't really even know how to code for a while. And then he learned how to code. And then I've like taught a bunch of people how to code. And like what happens to most people is you just plateau. You get a job and you're like, all right, I'm good. I'm going to stop learning. Learning was really stressful. I'm just going to coast and make a lot of money. And like this dude just like kept challenging himself. And in like three or four years, he's like building one of like the world's best programming frameworks. And he's just like better than people who've been wow. doing it their entire lives, right? In any field, there's not that much knowledge. Like if you just keep digging, like you can probably kind of catch up to the gold standard in like three or four years if you just don't stop. That's 100% true. And it is funny because I, I think a lot of these industries, they have all this like terminology and all this jargon. And the jargon is really just meant to keep people out, right? It's like you, you, these experts want to create these barriers to entry. And there were times we did feel really stupid. We would we would reach out to this food scientist and we'd say, hey, you're a food scientist. We need a food scientist. And then, you know, she would be like, do you know how like dumb of a question that is? Like, that's like going to like, it's like going to like a back end programmer and being like, we need you to do like, you know, front end and everything. Like, it's like everyone is specialized in this industry, right? So a cookie food scientist is not going to know how to make a noodle. So we were like, this is really self-critical. Those dumb business business people who go like, I need a co-founder technical engineer to build everything. <laughs> like that's how it was in the early days. And then over time we were like, okay, no one's going to do this for us. We, we need to just learn this from first principles and make this ourselves. I think there's something about being willing to be dumb though. Like that's how you learn. People are generally much more willing to teach someone who isn't really ashamed to ask dumb questions than they are to teach someone who seems like a know-it-all. And if you correct them, like it's going to be this huge fight and you're going to crush their ego. You went through like these 200 iterations, basically gradually accruing more knowledge, meeting the food scientists who weren't assholes, and he saw the potential and <laughs> thought it was cool. At what point did you have a breakthrough? There, there were a few breakthroughs. One was an, a complete accident. We were actually up in Seattle meeting with our like chef and food science advisor, and we ran out of a core ingredient. It was like the number one ingredient. It, it was like a protein that I think at the time it was like a sunflower protein or something. And we were like, oh my God, we're out of this ingredient. We forgot to bring enough from San Francisco. We're, we're super screwed. So we started calling all the supermarkets in the area. And one of them, it was like this natural grocer, super small one was like, hey, we might have some. So we went there, all four of us. And unfortunately they had made a mistake. Like they didn't have it. And K-Chan was walking in this like nuts section. And he, like his leg brushed up against this jar thing. And it was a jar of pumpkin seed protein. And he was like, screw it. Like, I'll, that's the only thing we have. Let's just bring it home. And we brought it. And when we started making the noodles, it formed really, really well. And the noodle tasted really good. And we were like, holy crap, this is like those stories where you invent like penicillin, like from a pure accident. <laughs> like, okay, I'm not comparing Amy ramen to that. But yeah. like, that, that's how it felt at the time. It was like, wow, this would have never happened if we just like didn't run out of this ingredient. So I would say the second breakthrough was just finding a manufacturer. I think most people, most food founders, the biggest struggle they have is you create this formula in your kitchen. You think it's like the best thing ever, but you need to bring it to commercial scale. And you have to convince a manufacturer to work with you and take a chance on you. And these manufacturers, they're basically like venture investors. They, are, they likely is the chance that they already have all of their production lines running with like other clients. And for them to take capacity out of that line to let a brand new startup use that line capacity is a huge risk for them because if their line's not running, they're not making money and they have no idea if your product's going to sell. They, they have no idea who you are. And so you basically have to fake it till you make it. You got to pretend like you're someone worthy of them taking a chance of letting you run on their lines. And this process is not fun. There is no online marketplace or Craigslist to find food manufacturers. It's actually like speaking of incentives, it's in their best interest not to be in a liquid marketplace because they want to have the information asymmetry. They don't want you to know like how much capacity they have. They don't want you to know how much they charge. They don't want to, you to know who the other manufacturers are because then they can charge whatever the hell they want per unit and then you have to pay it. You have zero leverage. So I remember there was a period of time, maybe for like three months where we were brute force cold calling every single noodle manufacturer we could find both domestically and internationally. And there's this one manufacturer. So Kachin had actually sent an email to their VP of sales and their VP of sales said, no, I'm not going to work with you guys. You guys are too small. Then like six months later, 
because like we we did that six months ago and then six months later he emailed again the guy said no we're not gonna work with you and then i remember k-chan was sitting with me in the living room and k-chan called this guy the vp of sales and the guy was like i remember you you sent us two emails why are you wasting my time and he hung up on oh, wow. k-chan and i was sitting next to him and i remember k-chan looking at me and i heard the conversation and i was like holy crap like this guy just like hang up on us and call us a waste of time and i remember being furious i was super freaking pissed because i was like you don't have to be rude like that and so what i did is i went on linkedin and i typed in that manufacturer's name and i found this one person who works there and i saw that i had a mutual contact who was a twitter friend who i had never met in person but i had like met like actually i think i met her like once for coffee and i was like hey can you introduce me to this person who works at this manufacturer and so she made this blind intro I convinced that person to get on the phone with me. I gave him the full pitch. And then that person was like, well, um, yeah, this sounds super interesting. Like maybe we can chat further about this. And then I shot them an email and I was like, hey, by the way, we're actually going to be in your geographical region next week for other meetings. And this person was like, oh, well, then why don't you just swing by the office? And of course, we were not going to be in the area, but we just booked a flight, both of us. And literally the next week we flew to that location. And like when we arrived, like I told Keisha and I was like, dude, I think we should dress in like suits just in case. And it turned out to be like the most formal pitch meeting I've ever seen. It was like a full boardroom. It's a huge manufacturer. Like it was the girl who brought their director of sales because apparently the VP of sales was too ashamed to be there. And like we did the <laughs> full pitch and convinced them to work with us. And it turns out wow. that that person who I reached out to on LinkedIn was the basically related to the CEO. Wow. <laughs> and like they pulled us through because... I don't know, we took a chance on reaching out and like finding a mutual introduction. And I always remember that moment. I always tell the people like, sometimes you just have to do whatever, if, whatever it freaking takes. Even if you get rejected three times, you got to find a way. And sometimes you, you can't brute force through the door. Like you got to make sure you're going through the right door. But at the time, I think it was the right decision. Like they were the only manufacturer who could produce the type that we were looking for. COVID was like starting to get underway. So we couldn't go international. So. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that breakthrough. And it's the only reason we have product in the market now. Granted, like our version 1.0 has a lot of flaws because they had certain constraints we had to work with. Um, so it's not like the optimal product necessarily, but it got us to market. What a story, man. Have you ever read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight? It's like the story of how he's created yeah. Nike. It's just like that. He's like trying to get these shoe manufacturers to work with him. He doesn't even speak Japanese. Like they're all in Japan and he's got this tiny little shop and he's trying to convince <laughs> them to take a chance on him. It's exactly it. It's funny because um, after this meeting, uh, both of them were like, look, we, we want to give this a try. Um, why, don't you send, why don't you send us 50 pounds of your like flour and we'll, we'll test it in our machines. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's no problem at all. We'll have our team take care of that. And it was just like me and K-Chan sitting in a living room, right? <laughs> and so like we, we fly back home and we were like, dude, how the hell are we going to get 50 pounds? Like, I can't really put that in context, but it's a shit ton of flour. Like, it's a lot. It used to be the two of us in like a mixing bowl, mixing by hand. With 50 pounds, you have to make sure that the all your ingredients are mixed properly because if they're not, it's not going to run through the machines and and have like a product that's that's equally blended. So I remember we stood in our living room with these huge like gallon bags. This is super unsanitary. I hope they never listen to this. And we poured the ingredients <laughs> in and both of us jumped up and down for like an hour, like taking turns, shaking this bag. And it was brutal because like we somehow like cut ourselves in the process. So like one of us had like a leg that was bleeding. We were both sweating because <laughs> we were just trying to shake this bag between ourselves. You know that saying, it's like your blood, sweat and tears. Like that literally felt like the moment of blood, sweat and tears where we were trying so hard with two people to pretend like we had this team taking care of this trial sample. And then we had to like carry this to the post office and then they wouldn't let us ship it. And we had to find this workaround. It was so painful, but we got it over to them. And I, I know both of us at that time, like when we were, shaking the bag, we both looked at each other and we were like, why the hell did we leave the software industry to do this? <laughs> but then you still have to do what is still kind of the hard part, which is market this product and distribute it and like get customers actually interested in buying it and sell it. Totally. Which might not be the case. I mean, you did like these test runs, which I think is super smart in the very beginning where you're, you're sort of figuring out like, would there be demand? Almost everybody I know who's had any sort of physical product has done this. So we, we talked about Justin mm -hmm. Mayers from Perfect Keto. I talked to the founders of uh, Tough to Needle. They did the same thing. They're like, we want to sell mattresses, but making mattresses is super hard and expensive. So like, we need to do smoke tests, put up fake landing pages and see if anybody will buy a mattress online beforehand because it's just so high risk to spend you know years making this thing and then no one actually wants it. You did the same thing. Uh, what's, your, what's your sort of marketing strategy 
for Emmy? How do you convince people to buy ramen? After we did this demand testing and we said, okay, great, there's demand. We actually did a series of, well, A was we wanted to know which audiences resonated with this product and also what value props resonated amongst those winning audiences. And so we did two phases of ad tests where we kind of figured out like, okay, it's this like 25 to 65 year old female who lives in middle America, who's interested in like health and wellness. And oh, the value props they care about the most are low carb and high protein. Okay, other ancillary benefits like plant-based, lower sodium were kind of like also on that list, but it was like low carb, high protein. Because in the beginning, we even thought, oh, we got to make this gluten-free. Like, we got to make it grain-free, gluten-free. That's what everyone cares about. Turns out no one actually cares about gluten-free. Um, I don't mean to be offensive to anyone who's gluten-free out there, but when you're in this space and you're in the health and wellness, food and beverage space, you think everything is a big deal. So for us, we were like, oh man, like gluten-free has got to be there. But when we did our testing, it was like two people responded, we're like, is this gluten-free? And so it, we realized through a lot of the demand testing that we shouldn't spend too much time on product development, focusing on those areas. And then the next phase from that was we started funneling people from these ad tests into a private Facebook beta community. And we ended up growing that beta community to around 3,800 people. Um, we also built an email list of around 35,000 people prior to lunch. And what's interesting about this beta community is that these are people who were bought in since day one. This is when we had nothing, when we just had those smoke tests. And we would talk, we would share behind the scenes photos. We'd share videos, like when me and K-Chan drove to like a mixer to get stuff mixed, like later on, we grew a little bit bigger. There's like a lot of these like random videos. And I even posted like bowls of noodles I was eating for dinner, like had nothing to do with me. I was just like, <laughs> hey guys, I'm, I'm eating udon for dinner. And like people would be like, oh my God, I love udon. Like, can't wait for Emmy. It's fun because, you know, you share you share your life with these people. And I'm, I'm all about building in public. I, I think it's so important. I know you do that a lot too. But we had this community that thought of us as like, literally there are there are moms in there who have said, K-Chan, Kaylee, I think of you as my children. <laughs> like, I'm so bought into this. Like, you guys are my babies. That's how they feel. And that really was our marketing. Like in the early days, we were like, look, we can't win on Facebook CACs. Like we're, we're just, that's not going to happen. Like they're so expensive. We have to go community first. And as you know, like the, the first time we met was when I reached out to you, I was like, hey, I'm running Product Manager HQ. It's the world's first and largest product management community. And so I knew how to build community. And, and K-Chan was, you know, when he was leading social video team at Facebook, he was building products for uh, like content creators to manage their communities. So that was like, we were like, look, let's just take a community first approach, play to your strengths. So we know how to do. And when we did our soft launch, our beta community had, it ended up generating like 40% of our overall revenue. And that may not seem like much, but for a beta community of like 3,800 people, that's extremely high conversion. It's not a big audience. And so that, that was pretty shocking to us, but I think it just like, it, it works. And now we have all these people there who are like evangelists who will comment on our, now we have Facebook ads. They will literally comment on our Facebook ads and like fight against other people. <laughs> there are people who'd be like, nine packs of ramen for $56 this is insane. And then you'll have like four <laughs> of our community members go in and be like, these guys worked super hard over a year. And like, here's why their prices are so expensive. Yeah. And like, here's what they're doing to bring them down over time. And they're like preaching the things that we've been telling them over the past year. And it's really crazy to see. This community building and building in public is, is fascinating because it's probably the approach among indie hackers that has grown the most over the last year. Like it's super popular to build in public, but I think a lot of people don't, they don't do it in a way where they actually authentically cause people to care. You know, it's very easy to build in public and it just kind of comes off as you just like constantly advertising your business and you don't end up building this cult of people who are going to defend you against the haters and are going to talk about how your high prices are actually a good thing. What do you think most people are getting wrong that, that you guys got right? In the beginning, we tried a bunch of things. Like at one point we had this bot that was scraping all of Reddit and it would look for any keyword. Anytime someone mentioned low carb ramen, low carb noodle, keto noodle, it would ping us in Slack and I would click in, go to the post or the comment and I would respond. And then I would like backlink to our landing page. And that was like super kind of transactional way, right? Because it's like, oh, this dude is just like looking for every opportunity to like backlink to their website. And don't get me wrong, it got like thousands of signups. It was how we kickstarted our email list in the early days, but it wasn't sustainable and it took a lot of time. The second thing we actually did was we made like YouTube videos where me and K-Chan made noodles in the kitchen and we made recipes like beef noodle soup or like bacon carbonara using low carb Emmy noodles. and it was super low production. We filmed each other. We made these recipes. We would cut them into little GIFs, like GIF recipe videos. And then we would post them on Reddit. And we were just trying to like provide value to the Reddit community. We were like, hey guys, we made this really cool recipe. 
oh, by the way, like, yeah, one of the ingredients is like low carb noodles. Uh, you can use whatever noodles you want though, but these will probably be launching later this year. And that was kind of the middle ground, right? It wasn't like transactional. It was like, hey, at least we're providing value to you. And that did really well. And there was a period of time where every single week we were like on the front page of the cooking subreddit, number like top 10, and we were like going viral. So that got some signups. And then at some point we actually got banned from the keto subreddit because we were just doing it too much. And then the th and then like the community thing was like kind of this like, it was like the perfect point of the spectrum where it was like, hey, now we're like truly providing value because we're, these are people who are already interested in the product, but like we're sharing a lot of behind the scenes We're we're asking them for feedback. We're like, hey, here's a poll. Do you prefer a wet seasoning, like a liquid one, or do you prefer a dry seasoning? They were like, oh my God, you guys are listening to us to like develop the product? What? You guys are like, that's crazy. Or we'd be like, hey, what do you guys feel about this packaging versus this packaging? And that was kind of that nice sweet spot where it really started to work. And, and that's where we doubled down. I could talk to you about this for two hours. <laughs> it's already <laughs> been well over time. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm going to join your community and be one of the people making packaging <laughs> demands and defending you against the haters. <laughs> I'm super looking forward to your V2 noodle. I'm going to eat all my V1 noodles. And what would you say that, you know, fledgling indie hackers and maybe even experienced founders should take away from your story? Because you've been through the ringer. You know, me and Keichen had 10 years in the tech industry and like we loved it. And from the outside looking in, like people are probably like, oh, you guys looked very successful. Great, PM, you went to like, you started this like, you know, this bootstrap company with Product Manager HQ and you became a VC for Keichen. You went to like Facebook and it's hard to leave to work on what you truly care about. It's for us, we were like, one day we were just like, look, let's go work on a better noodle. And it's scary. And from the outside looking in, people were kind of like, dude, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, this is super stupid. Like, you guys are going to work on instant ramen. And I remember, like, we would go to events. This is pre-COVID. And people were like, what do, you, what do you guys do? And we're like, oh, we sell noodles on the internet. Or, like, this is what we're trying to do. And then, like, people would just, like, walk away from us, right? It's like the <laughs> typical, like... And then, like, yeah, you, you, you sometimes feel, like, a little shameful at first because you're like, oh, now society doesn't really think I'm successful, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Like, a year and a half later, like, I'm the happiest I've ever been. Kachin's the happiest he's ever been. We're literally selling noodles on the internet now, and it feels fucking amazing. I guess the second thing is, if you want to try something and the experts are telling you no, they probably have an incentive. I don't want to go into the whole first principles thing. I think that has been really overkilled, but it, it kind of is true, right? You can go on YouTube, read the research reports, do it from scratch, go through 200 iterations. You can figure it out for yourself, and you, you don't need to let an expert tell you, no, you can't do this, or someone who's like a 20 year career be like, no, you can't start that new business idea because of X, Y, Z reasons. Those are like the core indie hacker principles. Like mm -hmm. do the thing that you want to do and don't let anybody tell you that you can't, you know, we live in a permissionless age. The internet is democratized pretty much access to all information and even resources, maybe not manufacturing facilities, but like everything else you can go do it <laughs> and no one can get in your way. All right, Kevin, thanks a ton for coming on. All right, man. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about what you're up to with Emmy, join your community, watch your YouTube videos, all that good stuff? Yeah, um, Emmy Eats, that's I-M-M-I-E-A-T-S.com. The, the brand is called Emmy, but we couldn't get Emmy.com, so we just got Emmy Eats. But everyone calls it Emmy Eats. It's not Emmy Eats, just Emmy. That's where you can find more about this product. And we have a version two coming out later this year that we're super excited about. Um, for personal stuff, you can find me on Twitter, Kevin Lee Me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corlin. Thanks, dude.